We are studying this book of 1 Corinthians together, which is a letter that was written by Paul in the first century to Christians in the Greek city of Corinth. Listen to this description of that church at the very beginning of Paul's letter. This is back in chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are very kind words that Paul wrote. They were a people, the Corinthians, they were a people who by the grace of God had received salvation and knowledge and extraordinary gifts and abilities. And yet, just two chapters later, Listen to this second description of the Corinthians. Same author, same letter, same people. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. These passages taken together, they paint a picture that the Corinthians were blessed, but they were immature. A quick survey of the book demonstrates their immaturity. In chapter 1, verse 10, and Chapter 3, verse 3, they were fighting with one another. They were also jealous of one another. They were arrogant. They bragged. They boasted. They looked down on one another. They dragged one another into court. They wronged and defrauded one another. They were prone to sexual immorality. They were discontent in their marriages or their singleness. They were proud and disregarded one another's consciences, even becoming stumbling blocks to each other. They spiritually neglected one another by sweeping serious sin under the carpet. And they physically neglected one another to the point that the poor among them were even hungry at times. So, in short, while they were a gifted people, they were a privileged people, they were spiritually childish. So in chapter 13, which is likely the most well-known chapter in the entire Bible, in chapter 13, Paul lets it rip. This is the chapter of love. But as he writes, Paul is not 
thinking, this will make a wonderful wedding text someday. (laughs) And he is not thinking this will look really good framed in a Christian's bathroom. That is not what Paul is thinking. He is thinking to rebuke the Corinthians by going for the jugular. He exposes the very root and heart of their immaturity, a lack of love. So much freedom, so much opportunity, so many gifts, so talented, and yet, At the end of the day, they lacked what was most important, love. And so chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, it is Paul's compassionate correction. He began in verses 1 through 3, teaching the indispensability of love. In other words, remarkable Ministry and even selfless service without love, it means nothing. And now in the passage before us, verses 4 through 7, Paul gets to the nature of love. In other words, verses 1 through 3, that love that is absolutely necessary, verses 4 through 7, this is what it is like. And we'll see, when Paul describes love, he confirms the definition that we worked with a couple weeks ago. Love is the costly effort to do what is best for the beloved. So we'll be considering brotherly love today. That is love that Christians are to have for one another. As we move forward, remember, this is God's Word that we're reading. In God's Word alone, we learn who we are. More importantly, in God's Word alone, we learn who God is. We learn how we as people are to relate to the God who made us. And that is what is on the table, on the line, and at stake whenever we, myself included, sit under the preaching of God's Word. So we need God's help. God's help to understand His Word, let alone to be changed by it. So will you please bow your heads with me? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, reach us with your word and by your spirit today. Reveal yourself to us so that we would love you and one another more deeply. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you're using one of our church Bibles, you'll find today's text on page 902. I'm sorry I have a, some kind of cold that I've had for a couple weeks. It's not the coronavirus if you're... Because I've looked it up several times just to make sure. But my ears are plugged. 
don't know if you ever had that, so I can't, it, it, it sounds like I'm plugging my ears and I, I, all I hear is my voice and I hate the sound of my own voice. So it's distracting to me right now. I also have these coughing fits. So I'm just warning you and apologizing in advance. I hope it doesn't happen. Pray with me it doesn't, that I can get through this sermon without coughing. So let me begin by clarifying Paul's purpose in these verses. So here's what Paul is after. Paul wants the Corinthians, that's who he's writing to, Paul wants the Corinthians to selflessly use the gifts and the abilities and the opportunities that God has given them to love one another. That's what he's after. They were gifted, they had abilities, they had lots of opportunities, and they were not using them well. That's his rebuke in these three chapters, 12, 13, and 14. So again, here is Paul's aim. Paul wants the Corinthians to selflessly use the gifts, abilities, and opportunities that God had given them to do what was best for one another, to love one another. So here, in verses 4 through 7, this is Paul's famous description of brotherly love. And rather than just come out with a definition, Paul is going to rattle off 15 qualities. This is not an exhaustive list. Okay, This is not all that love is. This is what the Corinthians, this is what they needed to hear. This is what they needed to be reminded in regards to love. So my plan this morning is to examine these 15 qualities in order under three headings. So if you're taking notes, here are those three headings. First, what love is. Second, what love is not. And third, what love does. What love is, what love is not, and what love does. Let's go to verse 4 and begin with what love is. Is. This is love described positively. First, love is patient and love is kind. And that is how Paul positively opens this description of love. Patient means even tempered while enduring trying circumstances. And this is patience with people, not with things. This isn't keeping your cool when that spinning wheel won't disappear off your computer screen. This is keeping your cool when someone challenges your authority, for example. To be patient is to have a long fuse. Everyone's got a little bomb inside of them. And everyone's got a fuse. My fuse is different than your fuse. Different things light my fuse than what lights your fuse. We all have them. To be patient means that that fuse is long. 
takes a long time for you to erupt, for you to be fed up, for you to be angered. Kind means gentle and tender-hearted toward others. To be kind is to come across in tone and demeanor in such a way that someone knows you care about them is to be kind. It's commanded of Christians in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as in Christ God forgave you. Now, patience and kindness, though, it is not indifference. It's not to say there isn't a time to say enough. It's not to say there isn't a time to speak firmly to others. Sometimes it's important to say enough. Sometimes it's important to speak firmly and not gently. But what patience and kindness do is they slow down the judgment process. They slow down that internal judgment process and ensure that we are not hasty with our words and with our actions. So evidently, the Corinthians were often impatient and unkind. So that's how Paul begins his description by describing love positively. That is what love is. And now in the following verses, he describes it negatively. So This is our next heading, what love is not. Still in verse 4, love does not envy or boast. To envy is to be painfully desirous of another's advantages. And the key word there is painfully. There isn't anything necessarily wrong with desiring the advantage that someone else has. This is to be bothered by the blessings that others have. It's to be bothered by it. Your friend gets a promotion, and rather than be happy for him or her, you're more upset for yourself that you didn't get the promotion. Or maybe the athlete on your team or on another team is better than you. And instead of being motivated to work harder, you're just upset and angry that you're not the best. Love is happy for the success of other people. It's happy when it goes well for others. It doesn't let admiration and desire good things. It doesn't let admiration and desire turn into coveting. To boast. To boast is to exhibit self-importance. So to boast is to take something good that you have or even to say take something good that you have done and forget that you only have it by the grace of God. 
It is not based on your merit or your ability as much as it is based on God's kindness towards you. Whatever it is that you have, whatever it is that you're good at, you've worked, you've practiced, you've grown, but ultimately, by the grace of God, you are what you are. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And I boast when I forget that who I am and what I have is because of the grace of God. So the Corinthians, instead of thanksgiving, which is pointing to God, they boasted. And they pointed to themselves. There was, according to chapter 3, verse 3, jealousy and strife among them. And they also bragged and boasted. Chapter 4, verse 7, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have, Paul writes, that you did not receive? If then you received it, why then do you boast as if you did not receive it? What else is love not? Paul goes on, Love is not arrogant or rude. To be arrogant is to be puffed up with pride. Puffed up with pride. It is to be inflated with a belief that you are better than everyone else. And so it inevitably leads us to look down on others. Now this is beyond and different from mere confidence. There's nothing wrong with confidence. And proper confidence is grateful and dependent and hard-working. Arrogance is none of those things. Confidence says, I can do this. Arrogance says, I'm the only one who can do this. That's different. Confidence is good for those around you. Arrogance is not. Confidence enables others and makes those around you better, while arrogance, it diminishes others. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. To be rude is to not behave in keeping with accepted cultural standards of what is proper. So rudeness, it varies from culture to culture. It depends on what the standards are in the culture of what is plight and what is rude, what is proper and what is not. For example, in America today, generally speaking, it is rude to eat with your hands. It is rude to slurp your coffee or your soup. It is rude to keep your hat on in church. I'm not pointing anybody out. I'm sorry. <laughs> Generally speaking, it is polite to arrive on time, to make eye contact when speaking to someone, and to say please and thank you. But those things that I just listed off, those are not necessarily polite. In fact, some of those things are considered rude 
in other cultures. So rudeness, which is unloving, it just disregards social customs. It just says, you know, this is what I'm going to do, and this is who I am, and I don't really care what you think. That's rude. There are things that you shouldn't do around other people, not necessarily because they're even sin, but because it is inconsiderate to them. That is the rudeness that Paul is talking about. And evidently, the Corinthians needed to be reminded of it. Verse 5. Love does not insist on its own way. That's very straightforward. I don't think we need much of an explanation. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not selfish. Love does not say my way or the highway. It's often in life, every day, that we have choices to make and we need to decide what will be good for me or what will be good for others. And love does not insist on my way. Love, Paul says, is concerned with others. Also, verse 5, love is not irritable or resentful. To be irritable is to have your emotions, feelings, or reactions stirred up. Not easily stirred up, just not stirred up. So to be irritable is to have my emotions, my feelings, my reactions stirred up by those around me. We could put it this way. Love is not touchy. Paul is saying. People around the Corinthians should not have to walk on eggshells. Karl Barth wrote, The neighbor can get dreadfully on my nerves, even in the exercise of what he regards as his particular gifts. Love cannot alter the fact that he gets on my nerves, but it can rule out my allowing myself to be provoked by him. That's love. To be irritable is to be provoked. It's not to say that the people around you aren't going to get on your nerves. The people around you are going to get on your nerves. The people in your home, the people at work, the people on your team, the people at school, the people at church. They are going to get on your nerves. And it is not a sin to have your nerves affected. But it's another thing to be provoked. That's to be irritable. To where now my emotions, my feelings, and my reaction is under control by and stirred up by others. To be resentful. What does it mean to be resentful? It is to keep count of something in order to determine the sum or total. That's interesting. If someone keeps a record of wrongs and recalls them and adds them up, 
That's what it means to be resentful. Love is not interested in keeping score. Love works hard to forget wrongs. Love works hard to forget offense. Okay, there's one last negative statement regarding love, and it actually ends positively. It's in verse 6. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Here's what this means. Love does not ever take pleasure in someone else doing wrong, but rejoices when others walk in truth. Love does not ever take pleasure in someone else doing wrong, but rejoices when others walk in the truth. Now, you might think, I would never do that. I would never rejoice or take pleasure in someone else doing wrong. Maybe you don't. The Corinthians apparently had a problem with it. Well, let me ask you a couple questions, though. The news is full of wrongdoing. Is there an appeal to us? Is there some wrongdoing that we're entertained by in the news, in a television show? in a movie, in the life of our friends or family members? Is there wrongdoing that we're entertained by? Do we ever hear of the wrongdoing of others and feel proud of our own good choices? Maybe not. What if someone you don't like I know you all like everybody, but let's imagine. What if someone you don't like does something wrong and gets caught? Do you take a little bit of pleasure in that? What is that? Have you ever said to yourself or someone else, I'm really not surprised. I saw this coming. I knew it was only a matter of time. Are you feeling justified in your suspicion of someone else? Love is not critical like that. That's what Paul is saying. It's not critical like that. Okay, one more verse. One more heading. We've seen, according to Paul, a glimpse of what love is and what love is not, and now the final heading, what love does. So look at verse 7. Let's read verse 7 and then 
take each of these last four qualities one at a time. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is what love does. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast or insist on its own way. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. And so here is what love does. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. First, love bears all things. This means to endure something unpleasant or difficult, whether on one's own behalf or on behalf of someone else. Love can handle a lot of offenses without an end to loving. Love doesn't stop when offended. It can bear up under a lot of wrongdoing, a lot of sin, a lot of offenses, and still love. Love handles the sin of others, even the sin of others against us. Love handles it in a way that does not look to bring exposure or shame or embarrassment. Rather, love looks to bear it. To absorb it to a degree. Love bears all things. Second, love believes all things, which means believes, it means to trust To trust in something or to trust in someone. Another way of saying this is that love gives the benefit of the doubt. Love gives the benefit of the doubt. Love assumes the best. Seminary professor Richard Pratt says, Suspicion and doubt toward others do not indicate affection or love. Suspicion or doubt toward others do not indicate affection or love. And then he makes this qualification. Still, love does not demand that a person trust even when the basis for trust has been destroyed. Love does not give the benefit when there is no doubt. That is an important qualification. But all that said, love looks to give the benefit of the doubt. Love assumes the best. Love believes all things. Third, love endures. That's fourth. Third, love hopes all things. This means to expect or wish for something. This use of hope here. Love hopes for the best, we might say. Love hopes for the best, no matter what's happened before. No matter what the person has done before. No matter matter how many times they've blown it. Love hopes for the best. Love knows that with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. 
So love hopes for the best. Love hears a rumor and assumes it's not true. Love truly hopes someone will change. Love truly hopes someone will win their battle against addiction. Love truly hopes a marriage will survive. Love truly hopes a child will grow and mature and come to Christ. Love hopes all things. Finally, Paul writes, love endures all things. Specifically, this means to face and withstand with courage. It is persevering in love for others. It is difficult to love like this. It was difficult for the Corinthians to love like this. It's difficult for me to love like this. And it requires endurance. It requires perseverance. Leon Morris writes, This is the endurance of the soldier who in the thick of the battle is undismayed but continues to lay about him vigorously. Love is not overwhelmed but manfully plays its part Whatever the difficulties. It's a battle to love. It is trying. And it is difficult. And it does not come easy. And so Paul writes, love endures all things. So there we have it. According to Paul, this is what the Corinthians needed to hear. This is the nature of love and Paul's description, it makes clear that love is the costly effort. This is not easy. Love is the costly effort to do what is best. It is others focused to do what is best for the beloved. The Corinthians, they lacked this love. And so Paul wrote this chapter the first seven verses at least because he wanted the Corinthians to selflessly use the gifts, abilities, and opportunities God had given them to do what was best for one another. Now, in conclusion, I'd like us to consider how these verses apply to us. One option is that we could take these verses and reflect on God's love for us. Another option, we could take these verses and reflect on the love that others have extended toward us. Undoubtedly, during this sermon, many of you found yourself doing one or both of those as we thought about love. A third option, I think this is best. I think this is best because it's closest to Paul's aim for the Corinthians. And that is that we could use these verses. Look at these verses again. 
we could use these verses to evaluate and to instruct our own love for one another. So let's ask ourselves two questions. Number one, what gifts and abilities and opportunities has God given you? It's different than what he's given me. In fact, the gifts and abilities and opportunities that you have are very unique to you. And no one else has the same set in this room anywhere. So ask yourself, what are the gifts and abilities and opportunities God has given you? The opportunities are the relationships that God has given you. And there will be more to come, I'm sure, in this life. But right now, God has you in relationships. And those relationships are opportunities for love. Well, what are they? And what about your gifts and abilities? What, what do you bring to the table? How has God made you? Are you smart? Are you compassionate? Are you able to teach? Do you have athletic ability? Are you popular? Are you trusting? Are you optimistic? Are you organized? Are you a good listener? I don't know what it is, but you know what it is. So what are the gifts and the abilities and the opportunities that God has given you? Question number two then. Do you selflessly Use the gifts and abilities and opportunities that God has given you to do what is best for others. For your husband. For your wife. For your sons, for your daughters. For your brothers, for your sisters. For your friends, for your co-workers, for your fellow church member? Do you use the gifts, abilities, and opportunities that God has given you? Or do you waste them? Do you squander them? Or is it for you? Or do you use them selflessly? To love others. To do what is best. For those you say you love. I bet. That. As I was preaching. This sermon. The Holy Spirit. Brought conviction. On some of you. We fail at this. Don't we? I'm good at some of these, and I'm not so good at others. Would you like to know what I'm not good at? <laughs> you already know, don't you? I asked one of my boys this morning, I said, okay, I'm going to read you this list. And if you think that dad you know, struggles with any of these, 
I want you to tell me. So I said, love is not patient. He said, stop. I said, man, I got one deep into 15. And he said, and he said, he said, you could be irritable sometimes. Ah, you're right. You're right. I can be irritable. It's late at night. I'm tired. You only knew all the things I had to deal with today. And I just want to sit back and watch some television and get to sleep at 8.30. (laughs) Tired. I don't want to talk right now. I don't want to listen to you right now. That's irritable. He's insisting on my own way. I'm impatient. I am irritable. I do rejoice at wrongdoing more often than I'd like to say. I'm critical. Uh, I struggle to believe all things and to hope all things. I suppose as a pastor, while I've seen so many things go well, I've also seen so many things go bad. And so I can get to places where I struggle to hope for the best. And I struggle to hear a rumor that's not good and not assume that it's true. So the Holy Spirit convicts me says, buddy, you're not like this. This description here, this is, not, this is not you. You're not loving the way you're supposed to be loving, but like the Corinthians, here we are, and I'm a Christian. Many of you here today, I'm sure you're Christians, and we still, often, we do not use the gifts and the abilities and the opportunities that God has given us to love others. And so when we read this text, we're convicted, and you know your list, and I know mine. And I say, God, this, is, this needs to change in me. Now, at this point, at this point, there is a danger that this turns into a moralistic sermon. There's a real danger right now where all of us just go home with good intentions and a list. It's easy to do. It's what we like. It's, it's what many of us want. There's nothing wrong with going home today with good intentions and a list if we prayerfully seek change out of gratitude and love for God. But we tend, human nature, we tend to take lists like these and then we try and do them out of our own strength that's the means we resort to 
and then we get the motive wrong too. So we take our list and try to do this, white knuckle this out of our own strength, and then we try to do it for the approval of God or the approval of others. I mean, our default way of thinking is that we are good and that we can do good on our own and that good deeds lead to God's acceptance. I mean, that's just what people come up with. And that's what religions are designed to do. And that's what much philosophy is. It's, it, it, it's, I am good, basically, and I can do good on my own. And, and when I do that good or because I'm good, good deeds, that will lead to God's approval. It's this idea that I, I'm good and I obey. Therefore, I'm accepted. That's how it works with people. That must be how it works with God. I obey and do good, and therefore, God accepts me. Listen, that is not Christianity. That is not the gospel. It's actually the opposite. It's going 100 miles an hour in the opposite direction of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel teaches that we are not good. The gospel teaches that we cannot do good on our own. The gospel also teaches that good deeds do not lead to God's acceptance. Thank God. The good news, which is what gospel means, is that Jesus is good. Jesus is perfect. He was and is without sin. The gospel teaches that good and perfect Jesus, out of love for us, came and lived and suffered and died because we are not good people. And because of the sacrifice of Jesus in our place, God accepts us and forgives us and changes us. Listen to 1 John chapter 4 about love that brings these together. This call for us to love and this comfort of the gospel and God's love for us. This is in 1 John 4, verses 7 through 11. Beloved, John writes, let us love one another. For love is from God. 
And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So therefore, Christian, we do not love one another so that God will accept us. We love one another because God has accepted us. We obey out of gratitude, not fear of rejection. We do not love one another out of our own strength, but God's strength. So again, we do not take this description of brotherly love and try to do it out of our own strength to gain the approval of others or the approval of God. No. We prayerfully seek to love one another out of gratitude and love for God. 